Hey everyone, welcome back to Speaking to Stacy. Let me do my medical disclaimer to begin with. I have created this podcast and website, including any references, links, or other knowledge resources for informational purposes only. I do not provide any medical or professional advice on the website and podcast. Anything said should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. If you take any action or inaction as a result of any of the content you consume on the website and podcast, this is based solely on your decision, and I cannot be held liable for any of the consequences of such action or inaction. Right, with that important information out of the way, let me introduce my guest. I'm back with another episode of Speaking to Stacy, the show where I get unique guests to share their amazing perspectives. This week I had the incredible opportunity to sit and chat with former Blitzball captain Kyle Brown. For those of you unfamiliar with rugby and what the Blitzballer are, that is our South African national sevens rugby side. This conversation was interesting for a number of reasons. We started off talking about Kyle's unconventional start to his professional rugby career. And I believe that this would give hope to those of you who are just starting your sports journey, who think that you need to make every single provincial side, or in rugby terms, every Craven Week side to go far as a rugby player. Kyle proves this is simply not the case. And I think that's transferable to life and business as well. If you don't do well at high school, it doesn't mean you can't do well at university or you can't do well in business. Keep that in mind as you listen to this podcast. Kyle also talks about being in the right place at the right time, something that my previous guest, Nick Groom, also spoke about. And that seems to be an underlying theme in sports and in life. Sometimes timing is everything. Just because you don't get the timing right the first time, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go back a second time, a third time. It shouldn't be a reason for you to give up on your dreams. We also dived into some technical aspects of Sevens Rugby, Some of you may want to choose to skip over this section if you're not interested in sevens rugby or what it takes to be a high-level sevens rugby player. This section was particularly interesting to me with my rugby background, and I'm really grateful for Kyle going into the weeds on many, many topics. Some of the highlights for me were him describing how sevens rugby players train, how they manage their circadian rhythms with the long-distance travel, and how they make decisions on their on-field training. Given that they only have a limited amount of time to practice, how do they decide what to focus on for a given training cycle? We also touched on how important sport is to the South African society and how we can sometimes get carried away with pushing kids into sport without talking to them about other opportunities and possibilities for their careers. This is something very close to Kyle's heart as he's involved with the Reboot program I will put more information in the show notes about Reboot, but essentially they help sports people after their careers to transition back into regular society to help them find purpose after their sports careers. Without any further ado, here is this week's guest, Kyle Brown. Cool. We are recording. It's quite a it's quite a dramatic entry there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I also wonder why it starts with six seconds. I, I don't know if it's like a point of differentiation because that's something that I always talk about when I speak to somebody new. 
Um, I find it weird. Like, why not five? Oh, that or maybe psychologically they've decided that it takes six seconds for somebody to compose themselves before they can say something decent. Hundred percent. That's actually a good point. Never thought about it like that. Maybe it takes <laughs> three, two, one. Seems a bit like, oh my god, they've caught me <laughs> off guard. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's actually a very good point. It's probably exactly what it is. They've done. I can imagine some someone out there has done research and yeah. made sure that that's the perfect time that someone needs. Well, I, I absolutely have a laugh because I'm sure the guys at Riverside are like, no, we just want it to be <laughs> random and make it six seconds. <laughs> uh, I guess maybe I should I should hit them up and ask them, like, is there a reason why you guys have chosen six seconds? It's a bit strange. <laughs> It'd be really funny if it's completely random. <clears throat> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. All right, so... Ladies and gentlemen, I've got Mr. Kyle Brown with me today, and I'm really, really looking forward to the conversation with him. And as always, I think it's important that Kyle introduces himself. I always get my guests to introduce themselves, Kyle, so you can <laughs> jump in. And otherwise, you know, I've I can imagine a situation where I miss like a highlight or something that's significant to you that doesn't look significant in your bio online. So I think that's always the best way to do it. Um, I absolutely hate introductions and I prefer <laughs> that anybody that starts an introduction keeps it as brief as possible because um, I think that often you you can find I, honestly I don't take myself seriously enough to be like oh you well you missed when we won this tournament and and to be fair like I was a rugby player three years ago so I, I feel like I've moved out of that space quite a lot so the rugby part of the intro would be very much part of history. Um, that's equivalent to saying like, you know, I grew up in Bloberg and I went to Saks and I played rugby at some point in my life. Now um, I am a father of three kids and a husband to a wonderful wife um, and a transitioning sports person, former sports person into the real world and trying to figure out how that landscape looks. Um, and feels and um, it's been a pretty rocky three years to be honest and um, still I've, I've tried to keep my sense of humor about me but I have a phenomenal family around me that's kept me uh, really well grounded and, and in a good space okay awesome awesome that's really interesting that you that you identified the way that you just did there like you so do you do you not see yourself so much as a sportsman anymore, you see yourself as sort of moving on out of that trans- that phase of your life. You don't really identify as such anymore. So I've preferred to move away from that. It's it's been pretty intentional to to leave the sports behind because um, it does end, you know. And and I don't like at no point I want to look back and say, oh, you know, I wish I could have done more. Um, to be a hundred percent honest, I I was very happy to leave when I left. You know, I. I um, I made quite a conscious decision after the Olympics in 2016 to step down as captain. And then from then on was more like just cream on, on top, whatever, however long more I could play, however much longer I could play after that was was just fantastic. So I have absolutely zero regrets about my career, about leaving when I left. Um, I have no, uh, at no point do I look back and go, geez, I wish I could climb back in. I A lot of people tell me like, a lot of people ask, do you miss it? And I, and I say, bluntly, straight away, no. And they're like, shocked. Oh, wow, how can you not miss that? I say, well, yeah, I miss the camaraderie of the guys. I mean, that will always be something. But, I mean, in life, you move from... Oh, I've lost you. my life and it was like an incredible part of my life 
um, and a wonderful group of people to be involved with. Um, but that that had to end at some point, and and it did. And and now the idea is to to step away from that and have those wonderful memories of that time instead of trying to like uh, keep grasping at or clutching at straws. And and um, I don't know. I feel like things could turn pretty okay. sour at that. Point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe I know you you said you want to do brief introductions, but maybe would you like to would you like to Give a bit of background as to yourself as a rugby player and how you progressed, um, because I'm not sure if if everyone in the audience will be familiar with your story. And I, I often get my guests to give a get a, of a, a background, and then um, we can jump into some questions as we go along. Would you be comfortable with that? Yeah. Um, so I I went to Sax and played rugby for you know fairly competitively at school level but nothing no provincial rugby like that um i was year young for my standard in high school so i never even had a shot at craven week trials um and you know rugby was fun it wasn't really Let's pick up. So, so yeah, all right. So, my 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 journey into into sort of professional sports was slightly different to to most. Um, went through school, uh, didn't play any of the provincial sides. Uh, had was a year young for my standard uh, in high school, and so which meant like I didn't really even get a shot at Craven Week. Um, and the initial, like the initial step into it, was actually a guy named Alan Zondach who used to coach Western Province. He was starting a rugby academy the year I was finishing school, and um, he asked me if I wanted to come join the academy. His premise was that there was such an abundance of talent in in sort of the Western Cape that he would be happy for Province to take their 15 and the Bulls to take their under 19, 15, and everybody all the academies, and he would take like the sixth or seventh best 15 players in western cape and turn them into like you know like wonderful players and it was it was really cool it was like it was the first time that a coach had sort of shown interest or anything like that and i was going on a gap year i'd organized a gap year already so i was uh, sort of in my head i had afforded myself an extra gap year being a year young for my standard so did the gap year in london uh, in 2005 and then came back and, and took part in his academy called rpc in 2006 um and that was probably the first intro into like okay I, you know maybe i'm half decent and i can play some rugby and I, you know i went to go play for Bullant in a 19 at that point and then the following year i went to uct and played Bullant in 21 and the following year after that i played a, a little bit of province under 21 and, and so this is where the, the story gets a bit different to most guys entry into, into professional um rugby i suppose like I, uh, 2008 was the first Varsity Cup and we played, as UCT we played and we played very well and we, we sort of lost in the final to Marty's and then continued that season, where I played Super League A and then the season finished and, and I went on to be part of the province under 21 squad, played almost no rugby and uh, uh, the rest of the guys went on, the rest of the UCT guys went on holiday and, and they didn't train much and then came back in September to, to train or to test again for the following Varsity Cup. And it was a sort of a very random Monday night at at, use, uh, at Sports Science down in Newlands. And we did our testing and I, I'd been 
you know, for the previous six weeks, I've been training with the province under 21 squad and in good shape, uh, no injuries because I hadn't played any rugby and tested very well sort of that night, you know, where you assume that nobody's really watching and it's Monday night with UCT, first squad, whatever. And, um, and one of the guys, uh, the biokineticist there had actually said like he tested quite well and he, and he passed on my results to one of his biokineticist friends who was <laughs> part of the, the Springbok 7 side. Um, I, I didn't know that uh, that had done and that he had done that, and which was very kind of him. And the following morning, I got a call from the the Springbok Sevens coach, Paul True, at the time, and and he said, you know, would you like to come join a training session this evening in Belleville? And, and you know, for a moment, I actually thought I'd been pranked by somebody, but wasn't. And I and I went through, and that was it. That was like that was my entry to to professional sport, man. So it's yeah, you know, there's there's so many guys that bank on playing. Craven Week and you know there's this pathway set out for them but like even as I've spoken to a lot of other professional rugby players over the years so many guys didn't go through that pathway you know Warren I remember chatting to Warren Whiteley for a while and Warren you know Warren's a hugely successful rugby player and he didn't play Craven Week at all you know he's played for the Springboks and so it's I mean there's two sides to that I suppose like anybody who's playing Craven Week can assume that the pathway is laid out for them um which it's not um and then anybody who hasn't made craven week there's you, you've definitely still got a shout you know like if there, there's so many guys that mature through school at different age groups and different levels um that uh a lot of it comes down to like right place right time and, and that's where i found myself positioned well i suppose in, in 2008 and then didn't uh didn't look back from them. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that is very different to, to other people, as you said. It's very interesting there. You touched on um, right place at the right time. Everyone that I've spoken to thus far that's been involved in sports has roughly said something the same. Um, maybe later we can talk about luck and being in the right place at the right time a bit more in depth. Um, <clears throat> so I'm interested as well with your progression from there. So you, you then... Were you straight into the seven side, or did you did you make the squad and then not make the first cut that time around? I mean, how did it work from there? Did you was your progression quite quite quick? Yeah, so it was all like it was pretty quick. Like it was all pretty fortuitous. Um, we got together and I went over with the, the the larger training squad to Singapore. There was a training tournament going on there, and we played then did okay there then we came back and we had you know a, a, a training camp before the guys went off to the first tournaments of the season which was Dubai and George and I, I think perhaps there was one or two injuries at the time and I found myself a spot in the in, in the team and um yeah and just and that was it you know like we sort of rode bench for quite a while picked up a couple minutes here and there um and then I got my first start I think it was six tournaments into the season when and the current coach, Neil Powell, he was the hooker at the time and he broke his wrist. Um, and it's so funny because it it like it dawns on you so quickly. We were at training in Adelaide and we're playing, training, training, and then something happens and there's an injury and he's in a lot of pain. And the first thing is like, oh God, I'm a starter now. You know, like there's, you, you know, straight away like that, you, you're in the next in line. And, and then sort of your week changes a little bit because now you, but it, it shouldn't. You know, your approach should always be the same, but it does change. You know, you're now starting the games and that's different. Um, and then I, yeah, I mean, Neil and I still have a laugh today that I like 
I took his <laughs> I took his place and then you know then he became coach and so we've got a long relationship of back and forth and um, it's a very cool one okay yeah that's very that is very cool I think the one nice thing that I found from playing especially um, team sports is that there's definitely a sense of epic levels of camaraderie even in situations like that where you know you take someone's place obviously there are some guys that that don't react well but i in my situation i've always seen whether or not they they're like full-on mean it i've always people have always been quite graceful and humble in those kinds of situations which i think is really great it does help yeah so I, th- I think that's actually one of the a huge characteristic of a, of a good team environment is is the ability to have like strong healthy competition internally. I mean, if you want to, you know, because because competition like actual competition outside the team versus other other teams is uh, is every now and then. But you spend majority of your time training against each other and pushing each other. And if you can't have the right attitude and the right um, environment to you know to promote that. You're going to struggle to advance the team when they're not in competition time. So, uh, for us, I mean, like I had further relationships down the line with like Quacha. Quacha is like a really—he's an incredible rugby player, um, and he came into the team and and you know he he almost stepped right into the hooker spot that I'd been playing in, and and that was such a cool motivation to push harder and be more. And we ended up having such an incredible relationship, you know, as in. If I started, he was unbelievably happy for me. And if he started, I was unbelievably happy for him. And, and we would constantly support each other and talk about how to get better and what would be slightly different. I mean, I remember often if I was reserve on the and I would replace him, we would we would sort of high-five each other on the changeover and he would give me one or two tips at the scrum and we would carry on. And, and that was like the most perfect relationship that I could think of. Um, and, you know, that, that for me helped... Like it even helped my space being sitting on the bench. I was comfortable to be there. I was happy to be there. I was happy to play backup for him. And and when I started, he was happy to play backup for me. Um, and it just that was definitely one of my my favorite relationships in the whole team. That's that's very very cool. And I think as you you mentioned there, talking about building successful environments and successful teams, I can imagine that that kind of environment can only result in in high levels of success and i think it's quite evident in the results that you guys got throughout your career that it clearly was working in your guys favor to have that kind of environment yeah Yeah, and it doesn't happen with everybody like you've got to manage a lot of that i mean some guys um they don't react well to being moved from and and it happens quite a fluid thing in a sevenson because there's six games throughout the weekend some guys move from starting to bench back to starting throughout the weekend and some guys don't react well to it at all, you know. And for them, for, for a lot of guys, I think it's very much a um, um, it's a comfort knowing exactly what they're going to do, so they know how they're going to start the game. If they start, they know how they're going to start. What's their first thing going to be? So, um, to come off the bench is actually a surprisingly difficult thing to do because you are naturally more energetic than everybody else, but you've also got to manage that energy. You know, you you're coming onto the bench, you come off the bench, and and your initial um thought is that okay well now i've got to go change the world and and you've got to do something crazy and like amazing and spark it alive and in actual fact that's that's not like it's not that at all you know when you come off the bench your um uh, your first objective is to add a little bit more energy to things but to stay within the flow of the game if you now go crazy and you break the mold of everything you actually sort of you're buggering up the synchronicity of everybody else around you you know 
So it's it's to come in up the level of energy a little bit, and and uh, but also don't break the. There's no need to break the mold. Things are going all right, or they might not be going all right. But either way, there's no need to come in and, and try to be the solo hero and 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 break things up. You um you just have to kind of like there was stupid like several stupid analogies. I think just one is you get it. You jump in the boat. You just need to be able to paddle a little bit harder. Don't change the direction of the boat. The the, mm. the you need to just up the energy. So and, okay. and that's that is a challenge for some guys. They they difficult. They find it difficult to wrap their heads around that. You know, um, self confidence might be an issue. So if they're coming off the bench, they now feel the need to prove themselves. And then again, that will lead them down the path of, of being some. You know, wanting to do something solo and say like, well, listen, this is me putting my hand up for a starting spot, but. The number of times we spoke about the importance of the bench and the whole 12 uh, or 14 eventually what it became, but like the the game is, is sort of the foundation of the game is laid by the starting team and, and the game is closed out and finished and won, ultimately won by whoever comes off the bench. And that's where we were able to be so much better than so many other teams is, is our bench was phenomenal for so many years, mm. you know. Guys that could easily be starters would come in and they, they, they would slot right in seamlessly and bring their little bit of magic while fitting into the full structure and then bring a little bit of energy. And it's all about knowing that role and being comfortable with that space. It's, um, it's, it's difficult, but I mean, maybe you get given three or four minutes at the end of the game and, and you do want to be a starter. So you feel the need to try something, you know, outside the lines, but that that's not part of the plan. The part of the plan is go in there, stick with the plan, and just be a little bit more energetic about things. So it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a lot more complex dynamic than people think it is. Yeah. And do you think, I've just been thinking while you're talking about that, is it, is it maybe the fact that in sevens, you've got fewer players on the field. So the impact of one player is, is a lot more noticeable in a 15 man game where there's less space for the individual. Do you think that that plays into it as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, that allows you to have to be very impactful, especially in, in sort of energy-wise. If you if you look at say a random example, like our defense would be using a rush defense, and and as things as you get a bit more tired and you fatigue throughout the game, your defense uh, defensive speed off the line would slow down a bit. It's a perfect opportunity for somebody who comes off the bench to up that line speed again, and mm. but then. To, to take it too far would mean that they would be shooting out of the line and they would create more yep. they would do more damage than they would add benefit so then again they've got to measure how hard can I push this line how hard can I take it up um, if you if you can lift it by 10 percent fantastic if you're going to shoot out you're doing you're doing a disservice to the defensive line you're actually wasting everybody's effort um, so it is and then like you're saying that kind of effect can be a lot more noticeable with six players around you as opposed to 14. Yeah. And when you played the 14-man game, just out of interest, what position? You, you were loose forward? Yeah, open side flank. Okay. Okay. I just thought it would be interesting to get your input. When you transition to the to the hooker in sevens, I know obviously the scrum situation is very different to the 15-man the game. Um, was it something difficult to adjust to, having to sort of you know be in the front? I guess you want to put inverted commas no. the front row, or is it is it just not not as much of a big deal in the sevens game no i mean we put a lot of emphasis on the scrum but we enjoyed the scrum like south african guys i think they enjoy a little bit more contact and a little bit getting a bit rougher with things but we found uh i mean a lot of sevens team don't place emphasis on or, or much emphasis or importance on the scrum at all you know but we turned it into a, a great attacking platform and 
when you've got somebody like Frankie Horn who sort of plays tight head for you is 100 and, I don't know, eight kilos or something, bigger than most guys had on their team, we could utilize that very well. And, and that became an attacking weapon for us when we would go through full conditioning and training sessions for scrumming alone, you know, and we would make okay. sure that those set pieces become useful to us. The, the scrum, okay. yeah, it's, it doesn't change too much. And then the role of the hooker becomes very much like what the role of the flank, an open side flank is. And most of the time it was ball retention, making sure that on attack that I would be first to the ruck to clean up uh, and making sure that people are getting the ball back. And then again, on defense, you want to make as many turnovers as possible. Okay. And I just want to jump back to something you said earlier. You, you mentioned that some guys had a harder time dealing with those changes than, than yeah. others. Um, I wanted to find out just from your, obviously you can't speak for other, for other guys, but on your, on a personal level, do you think that boils down to uh, maturity or just being in ch- having your ego in check? Like, what do you think that is? What, what differentiates someone from being able to, to handle that situation and, and someone not? I mentioned self-confidence earlier, um, and it could be that. I mean, it's a, it is a very dog-eat-dog world. You know, like professional sport is if you're not performing, you're out kind of thing. And you, it's a difficult – as a team, it's a difficult space to be in because you want guys to feel comfortable, but often comfort can lead to complacency. So you want to try and avoid, avoid complacency at all costs. Um, so you want to keep guys on their toes, but you don't want to do that unnecessarily by dropping somebody um, for something sort of that's not worthy of it. Yeah. So, I mean, m- moving players around you is often uh, uh, often under the guise of like uh, managing the team, like rotational basis, that kind of thing, keeping people fresh. Um, but I think there's huge value in letting a player know that when he's not on form, I can't start you kind of thing, you know? And and so and that's a careful com- like conversation because you you don't I mean like I said six games over two days maybe you move from the first game to the second game and you you drop somebody from the starting team to the bench uh, you really don't want to break somebody's confidence so that they damage for the rest of the weekend you hope yeah. that you do it in in such a way that um, and, and yeah like you said that comes down to the individual could be a, a confidence thing. Um, I definitely think maturity has something to do with it. I mean, towards the end of my career, like, man, I was just happy to make the 12, you know, like, and that, that wasn't really like in doubt. Like, no, it wasn't, you know, and, and that's sounding a bit arrogant, but it wasn't, it wasn't a major problem, but I was just grateful to be part of the 12, you know? So if I start okay. fantastic, if I'm on the bench, fantastic. I'm there with them on tour playing rugby, you know, that's cool. Whereas, but, but again, that's, I don't know, nine years down the line. You know, I've had enough time to, I, I sort of like, if it ended at that point, I've cemented a career already. Two years gotcha. into it, you, you like, you know, you want to prove yourself. You want to make a name for yourself in the rugby circles. Um, you want people to talk about you. You want your name to be synonymous with the Springbok Sevens team. So being dropped doesn't really like fit in with that. You know, the, how, how are you supposed to yeah. further your agenda? And then, then again, that's on another discussion. Like, we, we'll just talk about placing the the we before the me, you know, because now mm. you've got this agenda to become like this big name in sevens, but that's your agenda, bro. That doesn't really fit into maybe maybe that doesn't fit into what the team wants. Yeah, it might not be the best for the team. Yeah, so you've got to figure out what's best for the team, and and that's like that comes down to again the value system and how you can align 
your goals and your values with the team's goals and values. Um, and, and once you, when you do that successfully, then you can pursue your own goals while pursuing the team goals. Um, and, and that's, you know, that for me makes it like a very successful place to be. Got you. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to quickly ask you a little bit about some, some of the differences between, well, maybe not the differences, sort of watching from the outside as a spectator. Um, I only ever played the 15 man game seriously. We did a couple of sevens tournaments and things like that, but, uh, never, never had like full on training for it. So just from someone who's done both, I wanted to find out from the outside in, it looks as if it's difficult to transition between the two sports. Is it because they're so radically different, different, or is it just because you get like used to playing the one and it takes a while to, to sort of slot back in? Um, and did you have any experience between jumping the two? On a very technical note, it's okay. So sevens is just a faster game. So your speed of thought needs to be quicker. The movement pattern is also quite different. We move laterally a lot, you know. So with seven people or six people in a defensive line over seventy meters wide, you're covering eleven meters gaps per person or something like that. And that's not, you know, that's just bog standard seventy divided by six. It doesn't take into account yeah. two people stuck in a ruck and now all of a sudden you, you're running sideways for 30 meters. So the movement patterns are quite different. So Whereas in 15s, everything's quite attritional. It's quite go forward, take that gap, that small space in front of you. Um, and that catches a lot of guys. They aren't able to, to move sideways as quickly, which you don't think about very often. But when you get there, you realize, okay, but listen, I'm not as nimble as I thought I was. Um, there are some players who are inherently better at moving between the two. Um, and often those would be the, the smaller guys, the playmakers that move from wing fullback to, um, to, to sweeper fly half or wing in sevens. Um, we often said that there were a couple guys, I mean, Quacha, for example, somebody that moved between 15s and sevens would often take about two tournaments to find his groove again. You know, so the first two mm-hmm. tournaments and, and once you know that, and once you you communicate that with the player, then there's a there's an understanding. You can manage right? it exactly. You can talk about it, and, and yeah. there's no uh, the expectations are there that you're going to play a little bit this tournament, a little bit more the next tournament. Then you can look to start the following tournament, kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think even even on like defense wise, in in fifteens you can have a lot of people running at you, or at least the meter mm. next to you. Where in sevens, you, you're doing a lot of reaching, you know, a lot of reaching and then you're a lot of covering space, um, a, a lot of scrambling. Um, then, you know, on attack, the decisions, the, yeah, I mean, you've got to identify, identifying space on, on attack is probably the key fundamental to attacking vision, I suppose. Like there's a lot of technical stuff that goes into breakdown and ball retention and passing and alignment and all that, but ultimately the game is move the ball into the space get the defenders running you know do that for a couple phases then they'll be buggered and you'll run right through them you know you see a couple okay. teams that implement like a what we call like a coast to coast kind of thing where they take the ball from one touchline to the other touchline back to the other touchline back to the other touchline and once you've got defense running sideways like that three or four times across the field you'll have your way with them by the third or fourth phase you know? Yeah. So then, obviously, as a defense, okay. you've got to 
you want to try slow that ball down for one. Then you've got to try get that that rush defense off the line so that they don't get the ball past the centers. You know, so that you can manage the amount that you're bloody scrambling all over the field. So there's there's differences. I don't think um, uh, uh, there were a couple of people, and I remember Peter Engelbrecht was a mate of mine. He came back and he and he just couldn't. Well, he started sevens and he's just like the training was just ridiculous and he couldn't understand. And I'm like, bro, it's to be honest, it's just different. It's hard, but mm. all training is hard, and it's just different. And you have to wrap your head around that and figure out how you're gonna deal with that. And if you can deal with it, then you'll play sevens. If you can't, then you play fifteens. You know. Got you. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it's almost, I mean, without sounding too cliche here, it, it's almost as if it's the same sport, but it's not really the same sport. It's actually almost two different sports. Yeah. When you look at so. it at, a, at like a highly technical level. Yeah, and and you know we always. Like, I don't know, as a sevens, very biased person, you look at it and say, we've got to be very accurate, a lot more accurate. I mean, when we have a ball carrier, we've got one person to ruck, you know? One person can clean that breakdown. Missed tackle, miss tackle can result yeah. in a try. Missed tackle, if you don't have a sweep in place, it's it's a try. Um, so accuracy is a very, very big thing, but there's a lot you can do to uh, um, sort of limit the surprises, like we had quite a structured attack which meant that you know you know where the ball's going you know where you've got to be to clean so that means you can get faster ball retention um you can speed up the 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 level of play on defense we we also had a very structured defense but you sevens you naturally going to end up scrambling somewhere so if you too you know if you if you can only play in a structured defense and you're going to be in a bit of shit because like you can be structured all you want. If you don't, if your rush doesn't work by the second, third phase, and you haven't stolen the ball from them, everybody gets tired. Everybody, you know, like, and that's often what we said. If you can't break down a defense, just take it easy. Just hold on to the ball for a couple more phases, and something Save will happen. Save energy. Yeah, something will happen eventually. That, you know, even in a rush defense, somebody will lag behind, and then that's it. And then you've got to be sharp enough to take that space, and that's. That, that's where the margins become skinnier as you, you get higher up the chain. Um, we always said, you know, you'll get the chance with the ball, they'll get the chance with the ball. If you're not going to score when you have the chance, they will score when they have a chance, and then you're seven points behind. You know, quite simple. Mm. Then you have to stop them from okay. scoring the next time, and then you have to score the next time kind of thing. It's, yeah. So, it's, yeah. It's, it, sorry, it, I was just it, saying, like, it's, it's from... From watching the game, it looks quite like helter skelter. Uh, not much structure, not, not 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 much sort of process and those things. But it makes so much more sense speaking to you. Um, and that's often why when you watch a, a seven tournament against two sides that are evenly matched, it goes like one for one. They score, we score. They score, we score. Um, it's because that's literally how, uh, sort of fundamentally, how the game is kind of set up. It's how it's meant to work if it's done properly yes i mean if you if you have a possession and you and you march your way into the i'd say the opponent's 40 even you know inside the 10 like you expect to score you know if you if you don't score you've done you've made a mistake then or they've forced an error then the defense has done well um but i mean there's times where we play and a, and a, a, you know we would you would get quite good at competing the kickoffs and that one difference between 15s and 7s is if you score you kick off in 7s whereas if in 15s if you score you get you receive the ball yeah and if you can kick off and you can attack that kickoff and get the ball back huge 
and you can score again. And you, I mean, we played against Fiji sometimes where they would score, kick off, get the ball back, score, kick off, get the ball back. And it would be halftime and you'd be 21 points down and you never touch the ball. It is the most awful thing that can happen. Like you, you almost have no control over it because, yeah, it's it's just the, the kickoffs can be quite a mess also. Yeah. When so if they they're jumping up, they're tapping the ball back. The ball's flying everywhere. You got scattered defense, and Fiji just love a scattered defense. So then they'll just run right through you. Um, and then that that's kind of those positions would have led us to become very good at those pod setups. I don't know if you saw that where one person lifts a jumper. Yes. Um, and, and often against them, we would play three pods up front, you know, which is like unheard of. People didn't do that before, but we would make sure that we secure the ball. And if they wanted to kick it deep, then great. Then we'd have the ball anyway. Yeah. You know? Okay. But it's, we, we, we laugh often with the kickoffs is because you, there's no way to cover everything. Yeah. You cannot cover everything. But you can try cover the majority of their favorite options. Got you. Jeez, it's it's a it's a lot more fascinating than I had perceived before. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's really really strategic. Like you've got to you really got to know what you're doing. Yeah. Especially obviously as the as the how the higher you go, everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone's a good rugby player. Everyone's talented. So it's the small things on the margins that, that win those games. That's incredible. And everybody's analyzing you too. Yeah, exactly. You everyone's know? got so a video. Every single game that you play, every move you run, every kickoff you take, every kickoff you receive, every scrum you play, they've watched it like five times and they know the move you're going to play and they know the run. Can they stop it? That's a different story. Um, have they got some kind of tactic to unlock it? And that's where it becomes beautiful, you know. It's <clears throat> that, that you know that kickoff thing. It's we initially had like uh, like one or two options of a kickoff. You know, we ultimately grew to have five or six because whatever picture they show us, we should have a kickoff that can unlock that. You know, so if they're going to go two pods up front and the wing on the on the on the other side comes like quite flat. Then there's a then there's a the, the kicker will turn and kick over the wing's head to put it down in the corner. You know we're also very comfortable with kicking it quite deep and making a hit and, and planting people in their twenty two. So, but then if they if they put too many people back, then we're going to kick high up front, whether that's right in the middle where Vanet will go up, like the center will go up high, or I'll compete on the touchline, or even if they put two pods up front and they split quite wide, there's like a there's like a almost like a lob kick, okay. which is cuck to try to receive as a pod <laughs> because you have no time to move. And the second player from the touch, so you have one on touchline and the second player will be sprinting onto that. And he literally catches the ball between the two pods. They've had no time to move. The ball doesn't go high enough for them to, to out jump. And if that, if you can execute those and then obviously you rely on your kicker to execute those things well, but it, um, it allows for many different options to, unlock all the different pictures that you see got you and obviously that's done in the training pitch i mean how much time do you spend on those structured ideas is that predominantly your training or is it is it just a small part of what you guys focus on at training because it just seems to me that obviously those things yeah. are so crucial to winning games um i mean if you're getting your kickoffs right as you said with fiji you can dominate a side and yeah. at half time they they basically out of the game um, yeah, so I'd be interested to know: is it is it a huge focus, or how does it work? 
so that i mean the whole thing comes down to like time allocation i think that's what how we how we live life anyway is that you've got a certain amount of time on the on the field and i don't know maybe six sessions throughout the week but now i just spoke to you about kickoffs which can take an hour but do you have an hour to spend on kickoffs because then you must do line outs and the line out movement is as um the, the detail behind that is as fine and then the scrum you do the scrums and then there's a scrum conditioning session which is 45 minutes then you've got to figure out how you're going to attack things because all those set pieces are really nice but then 75 percent of the game is played open yeah so what is your how do you you know how do you play as an open you know from phase to phase um, those are just starter moves then, then you've got the other side, you've got defense, how are you going to defend? So, like, look at the, the converse for all of those situations. Kickoff, how are you going to mm-hmm. defend? Your scrums, how are you going to defend? The okay. Um, lineouts, how are you going to defend the lineouts? Uh, and then on defense itself, how are you going to defend all the different styles of play? So, England will have one style of play, New Zealand has a style of play, Fiji has a style of play. Um, and, and then somebody possibly more structured has a different style of play. So, You'll figure out different ways to, to do that. And then the better teams would be able to move from game to game in the tournament um, and change the way they play. Okay. And then, yeah, so there's a there's a heck of a lot of detail. Yeah, and you, you I suppose you allocate time to things that you have time for or you need to spend more time on. Okay. If the Lions have gone well for the last couple of weeks, then you allocate a little bit less time to that. But it's... Got you. There's really a lot to cover, um, and there's never enough field time. And then, of course, you've got to manage field time based on how tired the guys are. So you can't just spend six hours a day uh, out on the field. Um, Excellent. You know, sorry for going. No, no, it's good. It's, it's cool good. to give a, an understanding because a lot of so then you then you can have the difference between an intensity session and a detail session. So detail session, you just probably do starter moves, but you. You can either walk or jog through them, um, but that's not game specific. So you, then you need to, at some point, you need to train at game speed. Yeah, you know, because you can't just loaf around the field covering detail the whole time. Because detail's cool, but when it happens at 100 miles an hour, detail changes. You know, like yeah, that reminds me of Mike Tyson's yeah, yeah. famous line: "Everyone's, Everyone's got, got a got plan, plan until they get punched in the mouth." Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a there's a lot to think about, and then I mean, I, I Neil was quite a big fan of 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 making sure the guys they obviously train incredibly hard, but you also want them to be energized when they get into a tournament. Like, there's absolutely no use in having a bunch of guys that are burnt out, wasted, and tired when they get to a tournament. So that like, <laughs> you know, I've had times where the camp was so rough that you just dead tired. You super excited to just get on tour so that you can sleep for a while. Wow. Okay, that's hectic. Yeah. So, um, sorry to harp on about this. I just I, I like to understand this because someone who's got so much experience uh, with with that setup, it's great to to like hear the inside outs. So, would you say? I mean, you mentioned it a bit there, like if the lineouts are going well. You don't focus so much. Is it is it like one of those things where it's like eighty twenty principle, where you sort of you're focusing where you're going to get the most reward, the most bang for your buck. That's where you put yeah. your focus on, um, like your strengths, or is it, is it not really as simple as that? It's, I don't think it's as simple as that. I understand that okay. uh, Pareto principle, but yeah, there's too many things to cover to just go, well, we're going to go 80% of our time and 20% of the, of the good stuff. 
um, because then you'll just get picked apart. And that's not what professional okay. sport is about. Like professional sport is about being of a very high level in all aspects of the game. And that's what will, I mean, you've got teams that are very high level in one or two aspects of it. And then if you allow them to play like that, um, say like a, like, like a Spain, those folks can play rugby, Russia, they can play rugby, you know, but they can't play all of rugby. If you know what I mean, they can't mm. do all of the things really well. Like I played Russia in, we played Russia in Singapore once and we were down like 12, five at half time because we made a couple mistakes but those oaks hold on to the ball so well. You know, their ball retention is so good that you actually can't get it away from them. And like okay. I said, when Russia holds the ball for six or seven phases, they get anybody holds the ball for six or seven phases, they're going to score. score. You know, so that was our fault for giving them the ball and not taking advantage of our opportunities. But, uh, you know, the top teams will be very good in every aspect of the game, not just sort of and phenomenal in attack, but then quite average in defense um, and uh, amazing at lineouts, but quite cuck at scrums. You know, we our goal was 100% on, on set phase play. Like, so you you must get your ba- your ball back every single scrum. You must win every single lineout. Uh, kickoffs were, I mean, we had a more, um, more realistic target of like 75%. Um, so, and then, then you want to keep your missed tackles down. You want to keep your penalty counts down, your ball retention percentage. We have a target for that too. You want to, I think, and, and then you also, you do analysis and there's an average of, of tournaments that are success, uh, teams that are successful throughout tournaments. I think if you retain your ball for more than 85% of breakdowns or something, you have a much higher chance of being successful. Like, you know, in the top four of a tournament kind of thing. Okay. If you can keep your penalty count in a positive differential, like a plus two or plus three, so maybe you got five penalties for you and three against you, you again, you've got a much higher chance. If you can keep your tackle percentage above 82%, you've got a phenomenal chance of doing very well that tournament. Okay. You know, so there's all these metrics that and targets and goals that you try to put in place so that we can be you know, one of the best teams. And did that... <clears throat> obviously with with data and big data and the reliance on statistics and those kind of things in sport over your career did you see an increasing level of sophistication with like gathering that kind of data and using it in games or was it always there um so it was pretty much always there and, and uh it comes down to like how much time your analysis wants to spend on the game you know it's it's a very time consuming thing to code a game what did change over time was the refining of which metrics count, you okay. know, because you can have you can have a printout of like ten pages per fourteen minute game of all the stats. How much? I mean, you should see the stats now. Like how much time you spent in the opposition twenty two on the left side of the field. You know, what is your strike conversion rate? Everything's yeah. becoming just more and more uh, refined and filter. You can filter yeah. to different so many different aspects of. But but what counts? Yeah. Yeah, I guess there the eighty twenty principle would count. Like you know, that there's a there's a short list yes. of things. Oh, there I would say like, I'd say ninety five percent must go into five yeah. percent of the stats. You know, because I think we we came down to I think it, for us it came I think the three ones that really counted was tackle completion, ball retention, and and okay. and penalty. Interesting. I think those are the ones that if you if you got those three right. You would you would put yourself in a much better position. Obviously, it never yes. guarantees victory, but that's I mean, if you don't get those three right, you uh, you put yourself in a very tough yeah. space. That's so. super super interesting. I mean, look, as someone who's played rugby before, that makes one hundred percent sense that those are the stats. But 
it's nice to see it backed up and reinforced by the data because then it gives you sort of affirmation that at least we've been focusing on the right things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I suppose that's what I think that's a that's a value of data also is that you can look at all the stats and go like, geez, we are losing a lot of lineouts or we're losing a lot of lineouts on on our five or and then you can work those situations and you can make the corrections. But the, you know, again, for the ones that that really counted for us to be successful, we, we had those three. Okay, that's great. Um, you mentioned something about sort of managing fatigue and things like that. I had an experience when I played in my final year of, of uh, not university of high school. I we I'm sure you must have played in as well. You got that end of year sevens tournament at was it uh, villages villages rugby club, and yeah, villages sevens. Yeah, I just found so we played quite a big semi final, and I think as a result we were we were absolutely knackered for the final, and we ended up losing the final, um, yeah. but. Obviously, that's a bit different because we we weren't condition, fully conditioned for it, not as much preparation as you guys get. Um, and I just wanted to know, like, how do is there a systematic approach to it, or is it person by person? You got to evaluate who's who's uh, fit enough to to take it e- or not fit enough to take it e- and have to take it easy. Who's got enough energy yeah. to to push hard? Is it managed like down to the that, I, detail like that, or not really? No. That, that's like a it's quite a it's a very complex question obviously it all it'll it'll start sort of at, at a foundation level of we have fitness tests at home and that would be you know entry level and when i say entry level like most people won't make it but that's like the if you're not making that then you probably can't play at a high level so you start that we do our, the bleep test but the bleep test was a modified bleep test because the bleep test is like a continuous running thing where uh, you run as many shuttles as you can until you conk out. But the modified bleep test, we started at shuttle 82, and then you'd run two shuttles and rest one, and you'd try. The, the base test was to get to 180, and okay. you're doing wow. well when you get to 200, you know? Okay. Um, so that's that's like one thing. And then and then from there it begins in, and that's just running fitness. Then you've got to get in um, like contact fitness too, and then you've got to combine the two into playing rugby. And the uh, so a lot of the training is uh, and how it's modified now is tournaments were over two days and now more recently they favored like a three day tournament so you change a lot of like a lot of times I've seen the guys change the training blocks to three day camps so you would have uh, say a two and a half three week camp the first week would be um, reconditioning see where everybody's at if there's any niggles anything and then. They would probably fit in two three-day blocks in there that are at match intensity. So you would play uh, two games a day over three days. So then they would have two very hard sessions a day for three days um, as to try and mimic how you would uh, have to perform. And that would require you to to train incredibly hard, go and have a bite to eat, rest for an hour or two, then get out there and do it again. Wake up the next morning, be broken arrive and this is without uh, competition um stimulus so like competition when i say competition stimulus i mean like you get jacked up for a tournament you know and you you get hopped up for a, a game and a competition and that sort of alleviates a bit of the pain and it, it gives you a bit more energy rocking yeah. up on a thursday morning after wednesday was incredibly hard in Stellenbosch and maybe it's drizzling and it's not that lacquer but now you've got to go do that again. And that's that's what can be incredibly vital to correcting the attitude of, of how you approach those different things. 
Okay. Um, so you do that, and then you would watch. I mean, in, in training, they you know they would do load management based on on how, and that would come down to individuals. So often, if uh, an individual had uh, some form of chronic injury, they had a knee that flared up over, and and they would sort of know if, if they got more than I don't know eight hours field time a week or something, and that gets managed on an individual basis because you want. I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to get 12 fit players on the field at a tournament. It's not to, like, destroy each other at training fields because you prove nothing then, you know? Yeah. Um, throughout the tournament, you kind of expect all 12 players to play all six games, uh, you know, m- maybe all the minutes. But not, not everybody can play all the minutes. There were some guys that were just fantastic at playing all 14 minutes. Chris Dreyer was, like like an absolute banker. He could play six games, 14 minutes, no problem. Like he didn't, <laughs> you know, there was no issue. There, so maybe some guys worked at a, at a higher intensity, which meant that they didn't, weren't able to last as long. Maybe some guys had different impacts. I mean, there were different strategies as time went on because then you could start, you'd have five on the bench and obviously at the start, right at the start, you could only use three of those. Then it expanded to using all five. You could use any three of the five players um, initially you had to you had to um, uh, designate your three that you were going to use so then two oh. would just sit in track suits on the bench okay then you could use any three of the five then the uh, then the um, subs expanded to using all five then you could use all five which was an interesting one because now you're replacing pretty much the whole team you only got mm. two players left on the field then you could um, one player could be replaced multiple times so if I went off, five minutes into the game, I could come back on two minutes after half time and that resulted that that was considered two reserves, two uses of replacements. Okay, wow. You know what I mean? Got you. And Fiji Ben Ryan used uh, a guy named Pio Tuai, a monster, huge, yes. huge guy, tall, very um very impactful on the game and, and the way that he used them is he would do exactly that. He would play the first four or five minutes then he'd rest for the two minutes and halftime, two minutes after halftime, there'd be a five-minute rest, and he would come back on for the last three or four minutes again. And he was immensely impactful uh, doing Tough that. To that's, deal a, with. You know, that's a strategic thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because he feels, he looks fresh the whole time. You know? Yeah, that's super um, interesting. Eh? That's so, like, it, that changing the subs rules like that, it makes it even more demanding yeah. on the ta- tactical side of the game, because you now, you know, when there's three are designated, you're like, okay, cool, we know what we have to deal with. Whereas now you've got almost like a rolling sub situation. You don't know what they're going to throw at you next. It's quite hectic. So, um, yeah, I mean like it's, it's the, the the other thing was like in the past, they would make the finals would be, um, 10 minute halves. And that, that was like a thing that we enjoyed, you know, because, uh, you know, you become, you made it all through the tournament and then, you would be the two best teams out there and the final would be 10 minutes each way, whereas every other game was seven minutes each way. And it, then it came down to like conditioning. That was like a massive conditioning test. And we, we like backed our conditioning fucking to the hilt. You know, we thought we were the best conditioned team and I think we were for a long time. And as all those rules changed, conditioning became like less of a factor because now mm. you can use five subs, you know, now the, and then what happens, they change the finals to seven minutes each way because they found that because of the levels of fatigue in the players, they were actually seeing a lot of injuries in the finals just purely because there was more time 
that that extra three minutes away was was you know placing too much uh, impact on the bodies. So it's you always have to be very well conditioned. You know that that game is there's no hiding away. If you're tired, you're in big big trouble. You know, yeah. and, and and not sorry, not tired because you're always tired. You I promise you, first two minutes of the game, you're tired. Yes. You know, and then. Then it's about how to manage things from there. Uh, can you still talk when you're tired? And obviously, if you're fitter, you can talk better. Can you make good decisions when you're tired? Have you practiced under fatigue? Um, so, you know, all of that has to be considered when going through training because, you, again, like I was saying, you can practice the move at jogging pace, but if you haven't practiced it under fatigue at intensity, it's unlikely that you'll get it right or, or spot the situations and the gaps that you need to. Got you. I did um I did a bit of boxing a, f- a few years ago and the one thing I completely underrated I mean I knew boxing was tiring I'd always known that but I didn't realize just how tiring it is yeah. especially when you've got a human in front of you it's different if you're hitting the bag then you can like manage your, yeah. your fatigue um you've got another guy in front of you and you realize um when you haven't been in deep water before like that and you're like you're trying to obviously not get knocked and hit and you're also trying to hit the other yeah. person and you're super, super tired. Um, I can imagine sevens at a high level must be sort of similar to that. You like, it's high, like high level chess where you try and operate at a, at a yeah. high intensity and you're just constantly tired and you, there's just no way and you can't hide. It's not like 15s where you can maybe catch a breather while there's a line out or a ruck or something. It's like, Full tilt well, I all, mean, there the is with with the set pieces, but you just got to be more efficient, you know. So, yes. you, you like Paul choose to work on this on this thing of being able to switch on and switch off at like at at will. You know, the way that you switch on and switch off a TV or a radio is that like you would be you'd have to be on and say ball in plays uh, an average of like say thirty five seconds, and you have to be on for thirty five seconds. Then there are decent like there's significant breaks when the scrum gets called or there's a knock on, but you must be able to switch off. The moment that ball goes down, the ref blows, was you switch off, you know, and you allow yourself to recover and you stop that intensity running through your head. Then you walk in towards the scrum and you, in that switch off time, you can start discussing tactics. You remember, you know, where you are in defense or what move are we playing? And, you know, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds before the scrum packs down, you've got to switch on again. You know, but that is, that takes like a significant skill because, you know, obviously switching on is not that easy, but the risk of being switched on the entire time is that you burn out quicker. So you fatigue quicker because you can't be on for all 14 minutes for six games in a row because it's just, it's very taxing. Yeah. You know, so you allow yourself to have a breath. Maybe you crack a joke with the opponent. Uh, you have a laugh. Um, but that doesn't for a second mean that you're not switched on. You are intentionally doing that. Um, the 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 real talent comes in when you when you need to go again that you are switched on, you know. Gotcha. So like it's it's all good and well to be able to switch off, but if you can't switch on again, then then you you're a bit of a waste. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's. I mean, is that something you train? It's a, obviously that's more mental training, right? So that's more of the psychology side. Yeah. And do you guys in in the sevens world or in the South African sevens is there a team that helps you guys with the psychology side or is that done sort of through the coaching staff that, that have um, access to resources where they can do that kind of stuff? We had several different um, sports psychologists through the time that I was there, but that's over a period of like nine or 10 years. 
and they all bring different tools and different things. And, and often what happens is you'll find something that lands with you. You, know, mm. you might not identify very well with all of them. Um, but, you know, we had, you know, you had those different things and then you have your, like, I don't know if you would have dealt with it much, but like your anchoring points and things that make you feel comfortable. And I had this, this little piece of cloth that had um, like a waxiness on it that gave me, it, it was used for grip. And I don't know where our physio got it, but I would um, I'd cut a square of this for every tournament and I'd use one per tournament and it would be inside my right sock, you know. And so every between every break, so there was a breakdown in play, we'd stop, you'd walk towards the scrum or towards the line out, I would take that out and I would wipe my hands and it's, it's not for grip at all, you know, that the, the use of the grippiness of it is off after the first game. But it was a like a, an anchoring or centering or I don't know what other words you can use it, but it allowed me to go back down to, okay, calm down, remember this, this, this kind of thing, and it just allows me to kind of start again, and that was my trigger. But I think everybody has their own thing. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, you almost get a bit like, I've lost it once or twice in a game, and you almost get a bit flustered. <laughs> You're like, oh, God, where's my... Uh... <laughs> There's always that risk. But on the whole, it, it, it stayed in my um, in my sock. That's so interesting because that's not a superstition or anything. That's literally a functional tool that you're using as a mental yeah. aid to to help you. That's amazing. That's so interesting. No. The, um, the superstition was putting my left sock on first, then my right, then my left boot, <laughs> then my right boot. That was superstition. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I just I never I never had superstitions, but there were a couple of guys that I played with that did similar things. You know, like you don't they don't take their gum guard out before. Uh, they run onto the field. So in, in warm-up yeah. and stuff, it's in the case. And the gum guard only goes in as you're kind of running onto the pitch for the first time. Like weird things like that. It's it's interesting how some guys have to stick to their rituals. Yeah. Oh, very, very fascinating <laughs> side of the game. What, who was it? Neil McKenzie. Didn't he tape his bat to the roof or something before every game? Because someone did a prank to him in high school and then he, he scored 100 the next day. I think that I think that either him or Graham Smith, one of the two. <laughs> Yeah, and like then you had to do it after that every time. Uh, I mean, that's how the story goes. I, I don't know if that was just like a PR thing, but that that was the yeah the rumor. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I wanted to ask you quickly, maybe a little few lighthearted things um, on the traveling side. When you guys travel, you guys obviously had the luxury of traveling, or maybe not the luxury if you always on the go. <laughs> Was it always business, 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 and you guys are working, or did you have time to after, let's say, for example, no, it was after the tournament? Economy, economy, economy. <laughs> Classic. Um, were you guys afterwards? Were you able to wind down and enjoy the place you're in, or was it back on the plane off you go? So the the, the basic structure is you leave South Africa on like a Sunday or maybe latest on a Monday, and you arrive in whatever destination. So, like, if you're flying same time zone, uh, Dubai or London or Paris, then you probably fly on the Monday. Anything else, you probably leave on the Sunday, if not the Saturday, uh, and arrive there, and you would immediately get to the gym to go do a flush out because the traveling does cause a little bit of nonsense with the body. Mm -hmm. So you just do sort of a low intensity, maybe with one or two intervals to try to flush the body out a little bit. Um, possibly even a... If, if the you know if the guys wanted a, a slow walkthrough if the time zones had changed a lot and we generally try arrive in the morning you'd go do that gym flush out and then there would be some kind of an activity to try keep you awake for the rest of the day because otherwise you you'd have guys falling asleep in the hotel rooms 
Okay. And um, it messes up and that your was that, messes up your sleep cycle. Yeah, well that's trying to that's trying to reset your sleep cycle as yeah. quickly as possible because you know, you don't want to be you know, awake at three o'clock in the morning. Um probably a training session on Tuesday, uh and then most tri- most trips you'd get a day off on a Wednesday, possibly a half day, and w- which would mean you'd just do like a gym in the morning, like early morning, then you'd have off from about nine thirty ten. So you have about okay. off from like ten till dinner till about six o'clock, then you get a chance to go roam around um, and uh, and cruise and see the sights of. I mean, you can't go too far. The other thing is you also don't want you walking around too much because it's supposed to be a rest day. You're not supposed to fatigue your legs by doing. 23,000 steps through London, something like that. <laughs> um, then Thursday would be the big defense day. So that would be the big blowouts and you'd have a very intense session. Um, would be the, the day that you look to sort of hit your straps. And then Friday is generally captain's run with a gym session and then Saturday and Sunday we'll play. Okay. Um, in terms of like winding down, there's no jawling or drinking after the first one because we play in pairs. Okay. No jawling or drinking after the first one, and then you can have a bit of a party after the second one. Okay. Okay. Got you. And yeah. it's very interesting that you mentioned the whole uh, after the traveling, because I've got a, a big passion for bodybuilding and weightlifting and things like that. I did a couple of shows, one in 2015, one in 2018, um, amateur stuff. Uh, and just on a professional level, when those guys fly, if they get that wrong, that's that can be they can mean that they lose their yeah because they're just holding too much water they and they lose the definition and things like that so very interesting that you brought that up um i wanted to go back well not really go back i just want to ask you a question about your potential likelihood of getting involved in the sport maybe not as a player but maybe giving back to the game do you give back at all or do you want to or is it part of the process of, of leaving the sport, uh, you're happy to leave it behind because you've got so much knowledge. Um, I mean, just speaking to you, I've learned things that I, that I hadn't heard about before. Um, I mean, are you aware that you, you could like use that as a way, as a way just to give back or not interested really? Uh, I mean, there's not, there's not a heck of a lot of space in coaching and I'm not particularly passionate about coaching. Okay. Um, so that sort of rules that side out. Uh, I do like, um, I suppose I enjoy, I don't know if it's considered mentoring, but I enjoy mentoring the younger guys and talking to them. And the, as much as things change and time changes, most a lot of the stuff stays the same. So I see a lot of the younger guys now and we still chat. And I suppose I, I've, I've known them from playing with them for a while, although I don't know a lot of the team now. Um, when I see them, it's like they, they see a familiar face. And the value is that I'm completely removed from everything now, so they can just talk freely, and um, then we can discuss, you know, what what's potentially going wrong, what they could do better, or you know, a lot of it is like you, you want to deal with the off-field stuff a lot because, like, I can't help mm. them with on-field stuff anymore, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's about getting there's there's a lot of things that that tug at your attention or your I suppose brain bandwidth and like one of them is a lot of guys are supporting family members or uh, in, in different parts of the country and another one is education another one is what am I going to do after rugby that's always okay. a that's a huge one just because it's not being it, it's just a really average place to be in and it's like something that I've been going through for three years and I, I spoke to Chris Dry about it the other day and it's just I mean 
it's not something that as much as anybody can talk about it, you, you, you're not prepared for it. Mm. And it's a, and it's not because like, there's no limelight. Like I think a lot of people think that you, Oh, you've left the limelight and that's what you don't like anymore. I don't care for any of that stuff. I don't care for limelight. I don't care for Twitter followers or Instagram followers, anything. It's about having a direction and having a bit of a purpose in life. And like you had purpose in rugby in that you were part of a team and you wanted to achieve something fantastic. Where the hell do you fit in after that becomes the next big question. And you've got possibly like a lot of cool values as a, as a player person um, in, in like real determination, a desire to be competitive, all these kinds of things. Now, where do you position that? You know, that, that's a very difficult one. And, and that's something that players have to deal with. And they, they, everybody knows when the end of your career is happening. You know, it's, it's happening, but you don't want to believe it too much. But it's the last two years. Then it's the last year. And then all those things start weighing a lot heavier on you. And um, it's an interesting position to be in now to be able to talk to guys and, and try and give them and a like, guiding I hand. I try not to, well, sort of, but I, like, I don't know what I'm doing yet. So, uh, I, you know, I, I don't sugarcoat it and be like, well, no, everything's going to be all right. Because that's the most I've got from a lot of people. It's like, oh, I tell them I don't know where I'm, you know, my direction. Oh, but everything will be all right. I'm like, well, that fucking doesn't help at all. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, and and it's you, you don't want to sugarcoat it so that they're a bit more proactive with things. And so, I mean, yeah, so just yeah. more of give... the mentoring side of things. I think, I mean, I... Maybe it's just the way that I was brought up, but uh, my dad is very big on like the whole tough love thing. So maybe that's a good thing. You know, you, you don't want to sugarcoat it. And then guys get the misconception and be like, oh, it's cool. When my career's yep. over, I'll just slot back into society. Everything will be easy. And yeah, it's good to be, to be upfront yep. and honest about that. Cause I mean, you're not the, you're not the first sports person that I've spoken to who's, who's raised this concern and raised this issue. So it's clearly, um, it's clearly, a problem and i mean I, I mentioned this in, in one of the other podcasts that i did i believe it was with a south african rower a lady by the name of leanne purse and she's had quite a lot of trouble reintegrating back in and finding her place and her purpose yeah. and i mean i just said to her and i know it's a i know it's a bit of a leap because it's not the same thing but there is a similar thing that that happens with guys who go to the military and then they come back and then they it's yeah. two different worlds and they just can't slot back in. And so apparently the, I only know from the British aspect, cause I listened to a guy talking about this and he just said, they reintegrate you into society in terms of they can find you a job and they can find you a place to get you back on your feet and get going. The problem that they can't fix or they, they haven't been able to really do so well is the mental aspect. Like how are you going from combat zone into like civilian life mentally? It's a really hard change. And obviously a lot of guys suffer with that. Um, and I know it's, not as hectic as a sportsman, but I mean, it's a sort of a low level intensity of that kind of experience in, yeah. in what so it seems. I'm actually with a, a group, a sort of a prototype group now called reboot, which is a, a program that was started by Neil DeCock and Justin Malk and Duncan Woods and, and a lady named Marissa. Um, and the idea there is, is obviously reboot for life and reboot for, for all of that. But their premise is that they, they don't really, it's funny when I spoke to them and, and, and they don't want to take people on as they finish because you kind of live in this bubble for a while still and you have lots of energy and you're like, are you just finished? So you're, you're on a bit of a high. You ultimately, 
venture towards rock bottom slowly but surely because you're like shit like i don't know what's happening and and they said that's where they want to pick you up you know and that's okay. one that where you join part of a community and then they take you through the grieving cycle so they you know what justin sat me down and he said like it doesn't really matter if you've got the perfect job the perfect opportunity in front of you if you haven't uh, processed this grieving cycle of leaving your career because you don't think about it as a grieving cycle. Like I said to you, I'm done. Like I didn't, I have no regrets. I have no problems with having left. But it is something that's uh, essentially dead now. And yeah, you huge. need to go through that grieving cycle and deal with all of that before you can start again. And if you're going to just try pack it away in a little box, it's probably going to try kick its way out several times and, and, and keep holding you back. Um, and so I'm, part of that group now and that's that's been we're about six months into the the initial what we called forum and there's uh so there's there's about eight ex-sports people from all different sports and we meet once a month on zoom um and and it's again we are the prototype so we're working on the direction that it's heading but just to have a community that you can essentially vent with that understands and you you say things and they're like oh my god that's exactly what happened to me six months ago or two years ago or i went through this or somebody's not quite going through it yet but they might um provides so much comfort because you you don't feel alone because initially when you leave sports you kind of like you've left your your family your squad whatever it is and you tend to feel a bit alone you know you feel mm. like okay well i'm, I'm out here i'm gonna i'm gonna rule the world and I'm going to change it for the good. And then you don't, you know, and you're like, oh, God, where's my life going, you know? Um, yeah, it's hectic. And that's kind of the grieving cycle. So it's a, it's a funny place to be in. Yeah. And it, I think it's maybe um, I'm generalizing here a bit, but I, me personally, when I went, when I was younger, I went through a bit of trauma, like my parents got divorced and things like that. And as a guy, I just didn't really, I don't think I processed it as well as I could have. Um yeah. I kind of just was like, oh, you know what? It's part of life. Um, I, I can deal with it on my own. I can get through this. I think it's important to bring up awareness around these kinds of things and, to, as you say, to offer community. Um, just recently now, this pandemic, uh, we left South Africa, my wife and I. We were girlfriend and boyfriend at the time. And yeah. when, we, when we arrived here, about three or four months in, the coronavirus pandemic started. So... Just as we were finding our feet, the virus hit and then sort of socializing opportunities dried up almost overnight because um, just naturally everyone yeah. was scared, couldn't really make those connections. And for the first oh, to the first year of the pandemic, it was really taxing. And I only realized about three or four months into it that the reason why it was so taxing had nothing to do with being scared or anything like that. It was I had no social connectivity i had no i had yeah. no group i had no mates i had no community um it was basically just me and my wife and we did as much as i love her we did everything together yeah um and it just there comes a time when you, you like you need your mates not to you be know? confused with you not liking your wife at all it's, <laughs> you need more you yeah know, you need more that's what life is all about it's yeah. not just you and one other yeah we very and some people can survive like that and that's yes. cool but yeah. like you say we, we are i think we're built to be social community creatures yeah. And I mean, I'm like an extreme extrovert. If, if I take personality tests, <laughs> like I, I'm on like the 95 percentile level. It's really bad. So for me, I think it was harder than, than some other people. Some, right. some other people, yeah. like my dad, for example, my dad loves it. Like he's quite a lone wolf type of person. He, he, 
he's yeah. happy with his family. He can lock himself in his family and he's happy. Um, just depends on the person. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's wonderful. That's such an awesome initiative. You said it's called Reboot. Is that correct? Yeah. And yeah, it's called Reboot. And do you guys have a website and like find? I think uh, I haven't checked if it's online, but I'll, 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 I'll happily send you the, the okay. stuff. I think I'm pretty sure there's a website, but okay. you know, we're trying to expand to the second forum and the third forum now. I'm trying to find people that are going through similar situations, and there's there's loads of them out there. You know? Yeah, there must be. The idea is to just to help you know handhold guys, a bit or guys and girls, and and, and just through that transition period, um, and to to kind of be there and say like, listen, I know this is shit. We know this is shit because we're all busy going through it right now and provide support to each other. And then you know, it, it, I promise you, I feel so energized after leaving those conversations that it's uh, yeah, it's it's a really healthy two and a half hours to spend every month. Yeah, I mean, I would so, so, sort of similar thing. Like I made a epic drive to try and reach out to mates when i realized that it was the social thing and even just a zoom call yeah. or a, or a face-to-face over the internet seeing my mates and just having like i know it sounds a bit lame but having like an online beer with them yeah. and having a chat and a catch-up honestly after those conversations i would be so amped up i would feel as if sort of like obviously my dopamine all that stuff would had like been topped back up it was incredible like very yeah. very strange how impactful it was for me i didn't i didn't realize how important those kinds of things are to me because I always had it. I mean, I took it for granted and as soon as it was taken away, yeah, it wasn't good. I mean, it just makes so much sense. You hear of all these unfortunate, sad stories of people you know, really suffering and suicide rates are going up, addiction rates are going up during the pandemic and it makes sense because if you don't have an outlet and you're that kind of person and, you're, and, you're, yeah. and you don't have mates that you can just call because you maybe before the pandemic started, you were a bit of a loner, but you were trying to, to make connections with people. It's tough. It's hectic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I got you. yeah. Sorry, that's got a bit deep there. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, maybe before we wrap up, because I don't want to steal too much of your time. I know you're busy, you new father, and obviously congratulations for the, <laughs> for the new baby. Um, Thanks. I wanted to ask you a bit about... I know before we've spoken on, on on a call and you mentioned some things that you that you weren't too chuffed about when it comes to like being a sportsman or the the whole sporting world because I think the perception of sports from the outside in it's very glamorous because we obviously mm. it's it's pretty much like social media you just see like the upper crust of it you see what what um almost what they want you to see you see the guy driving yeah. especially like soccer players and like big basketball players and things like that you know you see the guys driving the lambos and the guys with the big watches and the big houses and it looks very like glitz and glammy but i don't think that's necessarily the a good picture of what it's really like because speaking to um other sports people they've said you know there's a yeah. dark there's a dark side to it um would you like to just touch on it the, the problem is like it's very double-edged because, you know, I can't sit and moan about sport and all of that too much because it's given me a wonderful life, yeah. you know, but I'm also fully conscious of the fact that like, and I was trying to think of something nice to say now. So it's like the road to that glamorous sports life is littered with guys that have or people littered with people that have left everything behind and have nothing to show for it, you know, along the way, because it, it is, um, it is only available to a select few that are lucky enough to be again in the right place at the right time 
Um, there's a lot of guys that I'm assuming have way more talent than me, but like my timing was right and I was there and I picked that moment to do what I needed to do and I made that team kind of thing um, and took that shot. But the tough thing for me is that, you know, I think what we spoke about, and this is all just like super opinion, we put a lot of, of emphasis on sport to provide hope and happiness in this country. So that ultimately leads to, and then, you know, in line with that is the limited number of opportunities for young people in this country. So so sport looks like a great place to go. You know, if education levels aren't that high, then, you know, at least I can play rugby or I can play soccer or um, because that's the dream. And also that's spurred on by the fact like that we place it so pivotally in society that you put these athletes on pedestals. So as a kid, why wouldn't you want to be up there? Yeah. You know, some of South why wouldn't you be a hero? Some of South Africa's biggest yeah. heroes are our sports people. You're right. Yeah, sports people. Yeah, yeah. And, and you put them on this pedestal, and and like if the and look how like we behave if if the Springboks don't win on the weekend, then the, you know the water cooler chat at the office is cuck. You know. Yeah. Or if the Springboks do win, then the whole vibe in the office is good, and that's like ridiculous. Crazy. I mean, I I remember you know? I remember as a youngster, I literally remember that uh, having family bries. And if the Springboks lost, the whole vibe of the bride changed. Like people were pissed off, yeah. the mood was gone. It was hectic. I mean, yeah. it's it's. I don't. I haven't really thought about these kinds of things in a long time. But now that you mention it, it, it yeah. it's so obvious. It, it happens a lot to people. Yeah. So so with that, along with that, is that now now you've got the, the pressure that comes with that. So it, it has. It's obviously it has its like significant upsides to be a sports person financially. Not as much as you think it does, but it, the upside is like fame and you know public uh, uh, awareness of you as a person and all that if that's the kind of thing that you're into that that'll make you happy but because there's so much emphasis put on the sport and there's also the the good amount of upside that comes with it this is a hell of a lot of pressure mm-hmm. you know like the pressure side of things means that people are, are so, so not just the pressure side the, the road to it means that people are willing to give up so much they're willing to give up education they're willing to give up work opportunities just to try and make that squad to have their crack because like, you know, again, at 16 or 17, you were told you might have been in a small school in a small town, but you were told, no, you're good enough to be a springbok one day, you know? And, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about the Craven Week guys. Like even the Craven Week guys are not guaranteed a spot going up higher, you know, to a provincial under 19 or provincial under 21 setup or anything higher than that. Like if you do the maths on, on that, like, there's a handful of people retiring every year, but there's 200 uh, young young players, young uh, young boys from from Craven Week going into the provincial setup. You know, you tell me where are they going to all get contracts from? You know, uh, and also with the, um, so that's one side of it. With the professionalization of the sport and the money pouring into it, there's obviously the sports science has got better. So the longevity of the careers is extended as well. So you've got guys hanging on exactly. deeper yeah. into their thirties. Whereas back in the day, you know, Oaks would have called it a day um, when they hit 30. 29, 30, 30, 30 yeah. yeah. So you've got that problem as well. You've got the extension of, of, of your sporting life as well. But again, because this dream has been sold. So like, like viciously throughout school that, you know, you, there's always an opportunity to be a springbok or to be a pro tier or, or to, to play for Bafana um, that they will they will sacrifice so much, and and then that also that goes hand in hand with it. Like if you're gonna be a professional sportsman, you have to make sacrifices. But the I think what troubles me is that people aren't 
There's, there isn't somebody there going like, hey, uh, at, at the age of 21, 22, because, you know, there isn't somebody there going, maybe it's time to start assessing other options. You know, maybe it's time mm. to start looking for different avenues, but they'll players will hang on to the age of 25, 26 years old, um, and then they'll get they'll get spat out of sport, and they've maybe had like the the, the thing that kept them there was being part of like a preseason squad, and you you're right there on the doorstep, but you never play, and and so that means that there's no money. You know, you don't you get paid some like very small salary just to be uh, be in the squad kind of thing, so you got no savings. You've sacrificed all education because you were told that you need to focus in, you know, incredibly on your sport. Then you're 26, and you you end up leaving with no career, no money, no education, and then life becomes incredibly difficult after that, you know. Yeah. Whereas I think the, and, and for me it was the, the the I think the one thing that I mentioned before is that like number one, experience is expensive. Like experienced players are expensive. Um, because maybe they don't play as much as the younger guys, that, but they've got this, you know, this knowledge that that they feel that they uh, they need to be compensated for. So that's a tough one. When budgets are getting tighter, uh, do you keep one experienced guy or do you get three young guys on board? You know, so that that's a discussion to be had, um, as well as like the need to. To, to sort of upskill older players or older people to provide more education, provide more access to job opportunities or job shadowing opportunities, prepare them for the workforce, isn't really there because that, again, requires resources and it's expensive. And when you do have the, the factory line of the Craven Week of 200 players coming every single year, why do you need to spend more money on an older guy when they've got replacements coming through every year? Yeah, we are the incentives. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, no. there's no incentive. That yeah, because I remember when we spoke about that um, in our first chat, I kind of sort of spitballed that idea, and then you know you you mentioned you know, but how do you incentivize that? Because the people that gain the most from that are the are the maybe are on the other side. They're the ones that are in the business world that are maybe getting these guys in to come and work for themselves. But if they're not the ones funding yeah. it. If it's the rugby unions that are funding it, they they those guys are out of the system. There's no reason to spend money on them, so yeah, yeah it's impossible to get it right. Um, this is a tough one. So it's not it's not yeah. all it's not all gloom and doom. It just needs to be more realistic. Yeah, you know the the fact that you're telling your 11 year old son that he's going to be a springbok and you're planting that, and, and and yes, like it's cool. You can be a springbok one day. You know, maybe the odds are super slim. Even if you're the best player in the country. Because of, of like, I, I try to tell people this, like, again, time and place. Yeah. You end up in a team at under 19 where you were great at high school and you were a superstar. Then you end up in a team at under 19, but the coach has a completely different playing style. You know, now you've signed to the Sharks for three years or something or whatever it is. The coach under 19 has got a completely different playing style. You don't really even fit in anymore, you know? So, and that's good. That was way out of your control. You yeah. couldn't control that. Yeah. They just play a different style of rugby. You don't look any good. Those are like a very important time for you to cement yourself as a rugby player. But you stuck there for three years now, and then you get no games. So maybe you play two games with under-19s over those three years, and that's it. That's the end of your career because you don't get renewed because you didn't show yourself. Yeah. You know, so it's not, it's not that easy, man. And, yeah. and, and it's not down to the fact that you have talent and you work hard. Yeah. Like, cool, those are all there. But the environment, the situation – the, the the chips falling in your favor like there's a whole lot of stuff you know and, yeah. and that's why I, 
you look at a talented player and he's so upset for not making it. I said, you can't always be so hard on yourself. Like, it, it's, a lot of it is not up to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important to, I mean, I'm a, a big proponent of like stoic philosophy, which is all about trying to focus on the things you can control. So I think in those kinds of situations, as a sports person, you've just got to try and focus on the variables that you can control. And if you don't make it, um, as you said, you know, it's not not always up to you. Um, I look at a no. few guys, I don't want to mention names, but there's a couple of guys I can think of that when they were at high school, I thought, geez, that looks definitely going to be a Springbok. And then he was playing yeah. al- alongside another guy who had, who no one considered. And the, the guy that no one considered, he go- ends up playing for the Springboks. And the other guy, just because of circumstances, he gets injured. Then he misses out yeah. for a season. When he comes back, there's a guy that's that's coming to his spot and has kind of put him pushed him to the outside and things don't work out. And that, that's it. That's the end of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, it's so hectic. It's so hectic. <laughs> it's a lot more to think about than just like, oh, you know, I didn't get my shot kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's just... It's it's more complex, and and I struggle with the the part that I struggle with is like us telling kids the whole time, oh, you're going to be a springbok, you're going to be a springbok. Like, there's a lot of other very cool things to be in this world. Yeah. And if you if you become a springbok along the way, that is magical, fantastic. But again, it's it starts with us putting like sport right at the center of the South African universe. Yeah. You know, we've got so much more to fix in society that could make this country like even better and better and better every single day. That sports is like almost a bit of a band-aid over all of that you mm. know and it's not really fixing it, it does provide a lot of happiness um and, but that should be cool that should be a happiness above having a great society yeah and also i guess something you mentioned earlier you know it even if you are a success at sport there is the whole <laughs> the whole reality of the post-sport life that so it even if it is a great boost for young people and things like that it's a short-term boost your career ends at a point yep. and then then what? So You still have to be prepared for something after that. Yeah, exactly. So w- w- regardless of whether you make it or not, it's still short-term thinking because sport is unfortunately a, a young man's thing. So, yeah, that's very, yeah. very, very interesting, very important. I like it. Yeah, I was just thinking I can relate to that in terms of I see a lot of young people, the same thing with university. Like everyone at school tells you, just go to university, get your degree, you'll get employment, you'll be fine. How many people go to university and leave the institution and they they don't get they don't get the job that they thought they would or that they were told that they'd get? Yeah, yeah, it's not so easy. Yeah, Yeah. I think maybe just running off a broken model. Like the older generations, there were fewer people, there were fewer degreed people. So if you got your degree, you're in. Um, And then obviously other historical factors like apartheid if you were a certain skin color you're even more sorted you're more set up for success so yes. yeah anyway um kyle i think i would i'd be happy to leave it there i uh, see we've already been going for an hour and a half and i don't want to as i said don't want to steal too much of your time i've really really enjoyed chatting to you um thanks bro and i'll no, it was good good conversation i want to keep in touch with you with regards to your reboot thing i would love to if i can do anything to help try and push it along and send get the word out there for you i'll be more than happy to do so magic yeah i'll uh we'll i'll, I'll send through some of the documentation and, and what they've got like the flyers and everything and, and i mean if there's any more information that guy or if there's any athletes that are interested and they're just like absolutely no obligation just want to have a conversation about it then we'd, we'd love to Okay, cool. I will, 
I'll maybe what I'll do is the people that I'm speaking to, there 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 have been a couple already that would definitely benefit from yeah. something like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, that'd be huge. Okay, cool. Okay, thanks. A thank lot. you, bro. All right, Appreciate man. It. Thanks for thank the Thank you so man. much for coming on. No, it's big Great. thanks to you. Thanks for giving up your time. <laughs> no worries. Have Chat a good soon. day. Ciao, man. You too. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. All right. I'd just like to say a very big thank you to all my listeners for listening to another week of Speaking to Stacey and a huge shout out to Kyle Brown for coming on the show. I hope you gained some perspective and insights from his experiences as a Sevens rugby player. Please could I ask you to like, share and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps me to invite guests onto the show and to keep on bringing you content each week. I hope you're all staying healthy fit, but most importantly, lean.